Thanks for joining us. The following is a presentation of Ignite Global Ministries and features the teaching of Pastor Ben Dixon. Pastor Ben has a vision of strengthening the church to impact the world. He serves as lead pastor at Northwest Foursquare Church in Federal Way, Washington. God bless you. Thanks for joining us today. We are looking at Mark chapter 13. We've been in the book of Mark, and now we are coming down the hill, and we are going to wrap up the book of Mark. Then we're going to jump into the book of Amos. So if you are following us along and you want to know where we're going, we're going to be looking at the book of Amos right after the book of Mark. So listen, get excited about that because we're going to try to go through some of the prophets, and I think it's real applicable. It's going to be really helpful to do that. You don't usually see a lot of people go through the Old Testament books of the prophets, but we want to do that. In fact, we want to go through the entire Bible. So those that's just where we're starting there, and at some point we'll come back and probably go through the rest of the New Testament, knock out some of the books of Paul, some of his 13 letters, and then we'll go back. And I would like to actually go through the entire Torah, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy and also Joshua, which we've already kind of gone through a little bit, but we want to redo it and make sure that we get every single chapter. So Mark chapter 13, let's go ahead and pray, and we will jump right in and do as much as we can today. As you know, this is the Olivet Discourse, so we will not be able to cover the whole thing because it is massive, 37 verses. Let's pray. Father, we thank you today for your word. We love you. And we always look forward to opening your word every single day. It's a privilege and it's an honor to know what you have said, what you are saying, that your word is the constant in a very changing generation, a changing time of history. And that really has been the way it's, it's been for human history, but we know that this is the constant, your word. Your voice is always constant to us and for us. We need what you have to say, so we open your word now expecting that you would help us understand your will and your ways so that we could walk according to them. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. We're studying Mark chapter 13, and I am going to read to verse 23. I don't think that I will get any farther than that, but let's go ahead and just jump right in, then we'll come back through and do some commentary. Verse 1, Mark 13, says this, As Jesus was going out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Verse 8, For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Some translations say the beginning of sorrows or many sorrows. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all nations. And Matthew 24, I think it's verse 13, I could be wrong there, says the gospel must first be preached to all the nations, and then the end will come. And this says it a little differently. 
Verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death, a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. But when you see the abomination of desolation, remember Daniel chapter 9, not sure if you do, but we will go over the book of Daniel too someday. Standing where it should not be, let the reader understand that those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house, and the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that it might not happen in winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect, whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets arise, will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now here's the thing, um, disclaimer. There are debates as to the time frame for all of this taking place. In fact, there's quite a bit of confusion over it. There are four main interpretations of the book of Revelation. I don't know if you realize that, but there are not just two. There are actually four, and there's a great book on this called The Four Interpretations of Revelation, or The Four Views of Revelation. Uh, I believe his name is Steve Gregg, who wrote that book. Really what it is, it just helps us understand that. Now, this type of terminology is tied to the book of Daniel, and it's also tied to the book of Revelation. So in order for me to actually do a really good job of breaking down time frames, I would actually have to do a thorough, in-depth study and connect the book of Revelation, connect the book of Daniel, and a few other places in the prophets as well. Why? Because this is all contextual. When you read this, if you were to just decide the time frames, in other words, we were to take this language and superimpose it over this generation, which a lot of people have done over the years. It seems like everybody in, uh, in wanting to say that Jesus is returning has taken Mark 13, Matthew 24, and imposed it on that generation and tried to decipher like a code all of the various things that are taking place in today's world that Jesus supposedly spoke about in this day, in the first century. The problem with that is we're not actually trying to understand the text, who wrote it, who did they write it to, what did they mean. We're not really trying to understand that as much as we are trying to figure out once again the end times and, and how that fits into our modern world based on the fear that we have of what is happening and where the world is going. What we do know is the first coming of Christ was his inauguration of the kingdom of God. The second coming of Christ is the consummation of his kingdom. And what, we're, what we have is we have a lot of theological truths in between this period of time that we're in right now, the, the last days, as it were. The great day of the Lord is the second coming. But in this time, there are many things that are going to take place. Some of the things are mentioned here, and some of them were actually to those that were hearing him 
prior to 70 AD, right? Jesus is about 33 years old. He's on his way to the cross, very close to being crucified. And so we know that he's giving this type of language to those that in their generation are going to experience a lot of these things, namely Jewish people. And so with that view in mind, and not me not trying to decipher everything and, tell, and try to superimpose this language onto today's world, there are some interesting things in here that could mean sort of a progressive unfolding of events or an understanding that would help us in today's world. But we've got to be careful. Listen, when we study the Bible, we've got to be careful that we don't take the text and put it on our generation, therefore trying to figure out the signs of the times. That's not what it was meant for. Some things can we can do that, and some things we cannot, but we've got to know which ones are which. You say, Pastor Ben, how can, can you tell me all that? I could if we had many, many, many weeks just looking at eschatology, right? That's really what it takes to, to understand this. So let me go ahead and try to unpack some of this the best that I can. First of all, we're looking here at Mark chapter 13, and what happens is Jesus and his disciples, they're going out of the temple, and one of his disciples, we don't know who, it's an unnamed disciple, says, teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings, right? That's what the disciples said. They're just marveling at the temple. And who wouldn't, okay? First of all, let's just go ahead and respect this disciple because the temple was incredible. In fact, as he says, look at these great stones. Some of the stones, Josephus, the historian tells us, they were 36 feet long, 18 feet wide. I mean, we're talking about massive stones. In fact, this was the largest worship structure in the entire world. It was greater or bigger than the Temple of Artemis, which was in Ephesus. That is one of the seven wonders of the world. Now, we know that the temple was torn down, which Jesus says in verse 2, so it would truly be one of the seven wonders of the world. It was the largest worship center, period. Some of the historians would tell us that when you looked at the temple, it just looked like dazzling gold and white. It was just white, white, white. These huge white stones. Like, a, I know this isn't a great parallel, but in the Lord of the Rings, you, you look at the, the great white tower. Um, maybe that's a reference, I don't know. But it's interesting to me because when you read historical references, and they talk about the temple during that day. It was truly magnificent. In fact, it was overwhelming. So the disciple is right to be saying these types of things, to be referencing the large stones. They were huge. But Jesus turns it, and he says a very startling statement. Do you see these great buildings? Verse 2, not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, here's what Jesus was talking about. This was a prediction of what he knew was going to take place. Talk about prophecy. Okay, we're, we're right around 33 AD at this point. Jesus is on his way to the cross. He's 33 years old approximately. So let's just put that at 33 AD. In 70 AD, we know that the Roman Empire comes in based on the emperor's edict and they kill about a million Jews, and they tear down the temple, essentially. Now, there's a lot of history that leads up to why they did that, how they did that, but that's pretty much a bullet point summary of what happened. The Romans came in, killed a million Jews, tore down the temple. They just decimated that building. Jesus predicts that's going to happen. He doesn't say exactly the, uh, those details, uh, but I can't imagine what they would be thinking because this was the cornerstone 
of Judaism. And so in the disciples' mind, and they're marveling at the temple, and they can't even conceive of a world without the temple, honestly. For Jesus to say this would just be confusing. And so verse 3, it says, As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew were questioning him privately, tell us when will these things be? And he's talking about the tearing down of the temple. Um, And what will be the sign that all things are going to be fulfilled? Now, I just want to bring up something here. These are two questions. This is two questions, in case you missed that. The first is, when will the temple be destroyed and the kingdom begin? So they're accepting that Jesus is accurate. They've accepted that he is the Christ, the revelation of Jesus being the Messiah, the anointed one. His pretty is clear to them. They understand that this is who Jesus is, but they do not understand a proper eschatology. Their understanding of the kingdom of God is still far from what is actually going to happen. So Jesus' teachings here are foundational for them in shifting their perspective from what they thought to what actually will take place. So the first question they're asking is, when will the temple be destroyed, as you said, and the kingdom begin? And then what event would herald the beginning of your kingdom, right? So here's what we're talking about. Jesus, this is what makes scholars debate. Jesus in this chapter is now answering both of these questions. When the temple is going to be destroyed and what the signs of the times are for his kingdom to begin. This inauguration of the kingdom of God has already taken place in that the king has come. Jesus is here. They still do not understand Isaiah 53, the suffering servant who must give his life as a propitiation for our sins, rise from the dead. Jesus has already told them this is going to happen. They don't understand why that must happen, but they do not have this in their thinking. First coming, second coming, and then in between time, the gospel going out. But Jesus is giving a picture of two things, the what's going to happen up until this temple being destroyed, and then also what's going to happen after that. During that time, primarily speaking, the gospel of Jesus must be preached to all nations before the end will come, the end of what they understand. That's where Jesus' second coming is going to take place, at the end of all of that. So the Great Tribulation, Revelation 14, I believe, Daniel chapter 9, lots of things tie into this. So let's just keep reading. So they asked the two questions. Jesus began to say to them several things, okay? These are the first priorities uh, for his answer. See to it that no one misleads you. In other words, there's going to be a lot of deception. So he says, take heed, right? Watch out. Take heed that no one deceives you. This literally means keep your eyes open. That's what he's trying to tell them. You, this generation, will need to keep your eyes open because... You're so expecting the kingdom to come right now that they could be deceived. And this is really important for us to understand that those disciples and that generation believed that the kingdom was supposed to, it was supposed to happen the way that they understood it. The kingdom of God had been inaugurated, but they, again, they're thinking military, political power. They're thinking the overthrowing of the Roman government. They're thinking of the Messiah, now Jesus, establishing his kingdom, talking about the millennial kingdom, the reign and the rule of the Messiah on earth. This is their understanding in that time. And so when Jesus says, hey, take heed, uh, be on guard, have your eyes open, 
many will try to mislead you, will easily, they could be misled because they're so expecting that to take place or in their mindset, what the kingdom is going to look like, that it could, they could be misled, right? And somebody could take advantage of that. He says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, uh, and will mislead many. So this we know, um, deception is going to have many false Christs, many false deliverers are going to rise up and say, follow me. They're going to, pr- they're going to give hope to the people. I can deliver you. I can take you out of the situation that you're in. Um, Jesus is telling them to watch out for that. Now, there have been a lot of teachings over the years, once again, that have followed these different people who have claimed to be the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus, and His second coming. It's not necessarily what Jesus means right here. He does say that again in a later verse, that that many will come and claim uh, to be the actual Messiah, Christ, Jesus. Um, But there will be many false Christs. There will be many false prophets. There will be many that will rise up and claim that I can deliver you. Um, And Jesus is saying, be on your guard, have your eyes wide open. They will claim I am he. They will claim that they are the Christ. This is not going to be the case. And I I think when we're thinking about uh, the Christ, the deliverer, the Messiah, the anointed one, when we're thinking about that, I, I just think, again, there have been and there always will be a lot of people that will try to give hope and they will offer people this solution to the world's problems. That also is coming with the Antichrist, to be honest with you, that this idea of someone being able to solve the tension um, and the turmoil of the world, and that is part of what the Antichrist is going to offer according to the book of Revelation. But this is something that we're going to see in bite-sized forms. This is what he's talking about to that generation. Bite-sized forms are going to be offered by different people. Be on your guard. Have your eyes wide open. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. So once again, you can see why people would think that this is modern day because wars and rumors of wars, how do we hear about those things? Well, we hear about them through the news and social media. And uh, when the newspaper started in print, you know, early on, um, but we're talking in the last hundred years that there's been this spread of information. We're in the age of information. And so people generally connect Jesus's words here to the modern day. I don't necessarily think that's what Jesus was talking about because rumors did spread during their day, just not at the same rate that they do today. But certainly they heard of wars and rumors of wars. And in their thinking, if a war or a rumor of a war were to start, Rome dominated the world. And so their expectation was that Rome would be overthrown. So they were looking for that to happen. So when the idea of wars and rumors of wars would come up, in their minds, they're thinking, who's going to come and take over Rome or overthrow Rome? And are they connected to the the Christ, the Messiah? Are they connected to the one that's going to rule and reign? And so they're looking for that. But he's he's telling them to be on guard. Don't don't take this and and be frightened on one hand or be expectant that this is what the end is. Um, has in store what you're hearing. For nation will rise up against nation, kingdom against kingdom. Um, That's going to happen more than once or twice. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. Um, They had experienced some earthquakes, but lots of famines they had experienced. These things are merely the beginning of birth 
pains, okay? So we're talking about the beginning of sorrows. Birth pains signal the end of a pregnancy. They are infrequent at first, and they increase gradually until the birth takes place. Women know this better than men. Men know this as observers. Women know this as participants. But the reality of what he's trying to say, in my opinion, is that the unfolding of the end is going to happen seemingly gradually, but it's going to increase, right? The intensity is going to increase. With what? With the various things that he says. So here he goes on to say, be on your guard for they will deliver you to the courts. That word courts literally means Sanhedrins. And um, the Sanhedrins, what we're talking about uh, there, these councils, uh, these were Jewish courts attached to the synagogue synagogues, which uh, tried people, charges of heresy, normal infractions against the law. Josephus tells us that each city's council was composed of seven judges. Um, the Mishnah, which I have a copy here in my office, it tells us that each city had about 23 judges. We're still talking Jewish context here. And so he's speaking to Jews. Jews would understand more uh, about what he's meaning here. This is why, again, the context, is this before 70 AD or does this... Um, jump over that period of time. It's highly debated, actually. Gospel must first be preached to all nations. Matthew 24 says, then the end shall come. So to me, the most applicable part of this uh, is to understand that trials, tribulations, turmoil, all that's going to happen prior to 70 AD. It's also going to happen after 70 AD. It's going to happen, and it has happened all throughout history, is happening in our time. But he says the gospel must first be preached to all nations, then the end will come. This is the most applicable part for us. Why? Because our life as followers of Jesus, as recipients of the gospel, has got to be consumed with bringing the gospel to people. That's why my benediction at the end of my sermons, most of the time, don't say it all the time, is that we bring Jesus to people and people to Jesus. Why? Because that is exactly what we are called to do. We need to be people that bring Jesus to people and people to Jesus. This is about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ unto salvation, as it says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the very power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and then the Greek. For the Jew first, amen, and then the Greek, so the Gentile. It is the power of God. What does that mean? It means it's the change agent. The Holy Spirit breathes upon the Word when the Word is shared, and a person receives that, the Holy Spirit then lives in, dwells within a believer, regenerates them, makes them born again. And it is from that place that a person's life will actually change. It is the power of God. When a person receives the gospel of Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside and regenerates a person. Now they have the actual power of God to be changed, to have a new way of life and following Christ, to do what Jesus says that we ought to do, to be who Jesus says that we ought to be. But we have got to be consumed with the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just with the end times. This is what it's all about to me. I'm always concerned when people are looking for the signs of the times rather than to be carriers of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because that is what helps people. That is what saves people. That is the power of God unto salvation. If we are consumed with the end times in order to get our suitcase packed, we're thinking the wrong thing and we need to be thinking the right thing. 
It's very important. Jesus tells them what's going to happen in advance, verse 23, but take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. He told us everything in advance. He told them everything in advance so that we would be focused on the right things, not looking for the things that we know are going to happen. We will be aware. Our eyes are wide open. We're careful. We're discerning, but we're focused. We know these things are going to happen, but we are focused on our purpose. And that's why I just believe that God is restoring the church back to the focus of carrying the gospel to the nations of the earth, starting with our neighborhood, from the neighborhoods to the nations. Listen, I, I got to keep going because otherwise I'm just going to keep preaching. All right. Verse 11, when they arrest you and they hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what, you, about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now he's talking about uh, persecution uh, as, as followers of Jesus. There's a point I want to make here that I think sometimes gets overlooked. Brother will betray brother to death. This is terrible. Father his child, children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. I mean, this is unthinkable stuff he's saying here. You can just imagine the disciples going, what? I mean, they believe honor your father and your mother. You know, family is primary. They, they wouldn't have, this wouldn't have made sense. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. You will be hated. Why would family hate you? Well, if you're Jewish and then you decide that Jesus is the Messiah and your family does not, Clearly, they're going to ostracize you because they think that you believe a lie. They think that you believe heresy, so they're going to, you know, wipe their hands with you. They will hate you. Uh, they will hand you over because they will believe that not only are you wrong, but you're going to spread the message and cause all kinds of destruction within the Jewish community. Now, it doesn't stop there, but that's just where it starts within the Jewish community. Verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Now, now it seems like he's transitioning to that second question to me. The first question seems to be answered, like where, when's the d destruction of the temple, right? So then he goes into the, this, the temple. He says, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader take heed about all of this. Now, you may not know this, but in this history-wise, in 2nd century BC, the king of Syria came into the temple of the Jews, sacrificed a pig on the altar of the temple. This was a historical reality. They would have this in mind. So thinking of the abomination, right, what he says here, of desolation, um, standing where it should not be. I mean, they, you know, they're thinking of a person who sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar in the temple. The king of Syria did that. This would be in their mind, and that's sort of an imagery that they would have. And so Jesus is now is talking about the Antichrist, which we'll talk later about at some point in Daniel chapter 9, Revelation. Um, when you see the abomination in the holy place, we're talking about um, uh, standing where it should not be. I believe that's the holy place in the temple. Uh, those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go and get anything out of his house. The one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat, but woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days, but pray that it might not happen in winter, for those days will be a time of tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of creation, which God created until now and never will again. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. 
But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened those days. And then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or behold, he is here, or he is there, do not believe him. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and show signs and wonders in order to lead people astray, if possible, even the elect. But take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. Now the timing of these things, that's really the question, when all of this is going to happen. Some of this is going to happen before the destruction of the temple, after the destruction of the temple, 2020, 2021, false Christ, false prophets. Um, there's great history and eschatology teaching of people that have actually chronicled how many have said that they were Christ and offered the hope of eternal salvation, claiming they were the second coming of Jesus. I mean, there's just like hundreds of people that have claimed this. So this has never stopped happening. But it's really important to like dive in and dissect, right? Because there are different views on the timing. But needless to say that that generation of disciples, okay, they were actually going to see the destruction of the temple. They may not see the actual Antichrist, but they obviously they haven't because the Antichrist has not yet come. But they, they were going to see the temple being destroyed. Some people would say that that this whole depiction of Jesus's words here has to do with the destruction of the temple and then verse 24 then he's going to talk about the great tribulation the sun will be darkened the moon will not give its light the stars will be fallen from heaven the powers in the heaven will be shaken then they will see the son of man coming in the clouds but to me when you look at verse 14 it seems like he's he's answering the second question that's what i think uh, talking about the end times. And I believe we haven't yet seen that beginning of unfolding events, or at least the birth pains, so to speak, that, that provide that gradual and intensified increase until the parousia of God, the coming of Christ, that is imminent. But who knows? We could be in that time right now. And I'm not here to create the stir to suggest that because of what's happening in 2020, that we certainly will see the imminent return of Jesus Christ. But one thing we know for sure is that um, the end is coming for all of us very soon. I'm 40 years old, um, average life expectancy in my family is somewhere around 75 to 83. And so I have a short amount of time, God willing, to let let my light so shine among men that they would see my good deeds and glorify my Father in heaven. I've only got so much time to share the gospel before I will meet Jesus. So regardless of exactly when the end times will come, my end in this life will be soon, and, and so will, will yours. Um, some of what happens when we have such a difficult, difficult days like the coronavirus and other things today are providing for us is that we begin to look up. We should have always been looking up. Can we, can we all admit this, that in a, in a historical moment that we've never seen before, it may turn our heads towards God, but let's first admit that our heads should have always been there to begin with. That's the first place to start. That's what repentance is all about. It's realizing, recognizing that I have not been where I should have been. Now we can surrender today and tomorrow to the Lord Jesus, to the King Jesus, so that we can live for His glorious purposes. Because the end is coming soon for everyone, and our life must be consumed as carriers of the gospel of Jesus Christ to to make sure that every person has a legitimate opportunity of bowing their knee and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. You say, Ben, you say this stuff all the time. You're right, I do. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. 
It is our mission in life is to bring people to Christ and make disciples of all men and women of all nations before the end shall come. Why? Because we want the gospel to spread. We want all people to come to Christ, those that deserve it and those that don't. Nobody deserves it, right? And so whether it's people in prison or people on the street corners or people in the office buildings or people that we meet anywhere and everywhere, we want everybody to come to Christ. We want every human heart changed. We want every person to name Jesus as Lord. We want all people to be transformed by the inner work of the Holy Spirit through receiving the gospel of Jesus. That is what we are consumed with. I'm actually confused how the church ever got off that. I mean, to me, one of one of the things that's difficult for me is that we definitely, all of us, including myself, we get wrapped up in lesser things And then when tragic times come, we look up and we say, why God? We don't have to ask that question, okay? We've just got to be focused on the purpose of God for each one of us, which is to somehow play a part of bringing people to Jesus and Jesus to people. Maybe you're not an evangelist. Maybe you're not going to lead hundreds of people to Christ. But are we praying for the harvest? Are we sowing into the harvest? Are we looking for the harvest? Are we supporting the efforts of the harvest? Church is changing right now. Church, not the purpose of the church or the structure, the infrastructure of the church, but church as we know it has got to go viral. And that means that we've got to grow into all kinds of methods that maybe we've never been a part of before. But are we supporting the work of God so that we can accomplish so much more in these times? That's what we've got to do. We cannot look back. We have to look forward. And that's what it's going to take. It's going to take incredible vision. Now, I'm preaching based on these passages because I don't know where to go. (laughs) If we're going to talk about the book of Revelation and Daniel 9, if we're going to talk about the Antichrist and the unfolding of the end. Well, this doesn't give us enough to really jump into that, and I don't have the time. But what I want to land on is simply say this. The tribulation, the great tribulation, the unfolding of the book of Revelation, all of that is transpiring. All of that is happening before our very eyes. This world is wrapping up, okay? Whether it's 2020, 2021, whether it's 2050, I have no idea. But what I do know is the Bible tells us that this will happen, that the Antichrist will come, the Antichrist will seek to offer peace to the nations, set up his kingdom, and do so as an affront to God, and Christians will be absolutely completely persecuted. But I wanted to mention this thing because I was thinking about this just maybe as a point of revelation for me today and as we're reading, is, is that persecution is going to come to Christians not just because they're people, not just because they're Christians, not just of what nation we live in, but persecution comes because we stand on the truth of God's word and we proclaim the gospel. That is why persecution is going to come to us. So don't be mistaken. Christians are doing a lot of things today. Christians are saying a lot of things today. But persecution, biblically speaking, does not come just because we say we are Christians, all right? Persecution comes because we live like Christians. That's what's going to cause persecution in our lives. But the Bible promises that it will come. And it may, it's going to increase at a certain period in time for all of us. And so why am I saying that? To scare you? No, I'm saying that because we have to be willing to embrace the call that we have received in Christ. And that call will lead to this type of life. We want comfortable living. I do too. I, I, I want to grow. I, I want to live to see my grandkids and, and everyone 
grow up and everybody have this wonderful life and all of this, this just American dream. I, I want that. I, I would love that. I, I'm, I'm being honest with you. Everything in me wants to have this, this televised, like cushy, uh, picture perfect, uh, Instagram photo worthy type of life, you know, where I just go and I, I become the, the silver haired grandfather that, that uh, has the grandkids on the knee and, and gets to watch all of them graduate and speak life to them and carry on a legacy. But that may not be the case. I mean, I want all that. That sounds amazing. But this picture of some sanitized life where no problems happen, no difficulties occur, and it's nothing but beautiful photo-worthy photo ops that, that, that look good in, 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 uh, in books and, and legacy is, is remembered and things are shared about grandma and grandpa and, and, and we meet Jesus in the sweet by and by. Friends, the Bible doesn't give that kind of picture. And so I know it comes from the American dream, or I know it comes from television and Hollywood or movies. I don't know where it comes from, but I'm telling you, if we're going to follow Jesus, and mark my words, you read this book, mark my words, get that mark, that was a cool pun. All right, just wanted to point it out. The Bible shares with us that followers of Jesus that actually live as Christians, that are praying into his coming, pressing into his coming, sharing with their neighbors, friends, whoever, with, about Jesus Christ, standing on God's truth. Those people are going to get persecuted. And that means what it meant to them in the first century. Houses were taken. Fields were taken. Um, livelihoods were taken. Lives were taken. Persecution comes to followers of Jesus. It has and it will. It is happening right now in nations across the earth. I don't want to scare you, but I want you to live in reality. I don't want us to look back to yesterday and wish we had the life that we had planned. Jesus said these things in advance so that we would take heed. I just wonder if we're taking heed. That's what I'm wondering. I'm wondering if when we read this, we use it as sort of a guide to do a Bible study, or are we using it as an understanding of the unfolding reality that is in front of us, that the Antichrist is coming, the reality of the end is upon us, these things are going to take place, we should not have to have fear. Jesus even says that I've said these things to you that you might still have the fullness of joy, that your joy might be, might be complete. In this world, you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take heart. The only people that know what is happening when things go bad is us. We are the only people, which means we are the only people that can have true peace. It does not mean externally. We look at James chapter 1, where James talks about that we rejoice in tribulation because we know that it, what it's going to equal in our lives of the maturation for each one of us as disciples, but also for the contending of the unfolding of, of God's trajectory and what he has with Jesus coming back. We are the only people that can have peace and joy in difficult times and tribulation. We are the only people that already know in advance what is going to take place. We're mocked for it. We will be ridiculed for it, but we can have peace as a result of it. 
I want you and I to be strengthened today that no matter what difficulties we face, we know the plan of God, we know the purpose of God, we have the message of God. We've got to come back to a place as the followers of Jesus where we are all missionaries. If we do that, we will win people in our generation over to Jesus Christ. We cannot be fearful of what is happening in our streets, what is happening in political arenas. The world is going to do what the world does. It doesn't mean that we don't vote. It doesn't mean that we don't hope for better days. But how are we going to see that happen? We are going to see that happen because we preach the gospel of Jesus, which is the power of God unto salvation. It changes people's lives because they are regenerated by the Holy Spirit then reform can happen not just in society but in the home and in families where God can now be Lord of the lives of those that now will propagate His message, will preach His message. And this is what we want. We were always a grassroots movement from the bottom up. That's where the people of God rise. I want to encourage you to be somebody that is not mistaken about the purpose of God in this generation. Regardless of what happens, this is what we know. Bad things are going to come. It's the unfolding of the world as we know it. But whenever that happens, however that happens, we do know this, that Jesus is coming back. And that is what we hope for. That is what we long for. That is what we know. And so what must we be doing until he comes? Occupy until he comes. Jeremiah chapter 29. In the coming days, I'm going to preach a message on this, not this weekend. I was, I was thinking about doing it this weekend, but I wanted to start our Revelation series because the Lord's put it on my heart. But Jeremiah 29, they've already been judged. The prophet Jeremiah has come to them many times. Prophets before him have come to the nation of Israel. They have disobeyed God far too many times. So God allows the Babylonians to come in and take them captive. Now they are, are exiles and a about to fully be exiles in Babylon. And God gives a message saying, 70 years, this, this will be over in 70 years. But what should you do during that time as exiles in Babylon? And he, and he gives a letter through Jeremiah. He gives a prophecy. He's like, I want you to basically plant vineyards and, and uh, grow gardens. And I want you to occupy. I want you to build houses. And I want you to submit to authority and I want you to live lives and multiply. He's like, I want you to occupy. I want you to live to the fullest extent that you possibly can. What would that mean in our generation? I mean, I want you to occupy as exiles in the nation that you live in until the end shall come. I want you to vote. I want you to be responsible citizens. I want you to be salt and light. I want you to do these things, live righteously. Matthew chapter 5, let your light so shine among men that they would see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Live in such a way where your life is light and shining brightly. This is what we must do during the day in which we're living. I'll preach more about politics and Christianity and, and how I've, uh, I don't have a view that we should be apolitical or non-political. I actually believe that politics today are not what God intends um, but that we ought to live righteously and uh, occupy it to the fullest extent that we are able. And, uh, and I'll be preaching that in the days to come. But for now, let's occupy um, until he comes to the fullest extent, biblically speaking, that we are able. That's our, that's our calling right now with the gospel of Jesus as our message. Amen. I wish I could say more. I wish I could say more, but I got to sign off, guys. Got to sign off. Mark chapter 13. Tomorrow, guess what? Mark chapter 14. 
Amen. Mark chapter 14. We're coming down the hill in the book of Mark, and we're going to study the book of Amos here in the next uh, couple weeks. But God bless you. Let me pray over us as we close. Father, we do thank you today for your word. And as we're reading about so much, so many weighty things, God, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice, to know you, to walk with you, to love you. And I also ask you, Lord, that you would that you would help us to occupy until you come. God, help us to live as uh, citizens of whatever nation we're a part of, to live rightly and righteously, to show forth good deeds that people would glorify our Father in heaven, that we would be a blessing, that we would pray for the welfare of our city, knowing that our message is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can change people from the inside out. And when people are changed, then we can get on with the stuff that we long for, that we ache for, that only you will fully bring and satisfy in your coming. So Lord, we look forward to that. In the meantime, would you give us eyes that are wide open? Would you give us clear discernment on what to watch for, what to pay attention to, what to discard, what to not be distracted by, what to be focused on and carry your purpose? We thank you, Lord, that you've given us, said these things to us in advance, that not only for that generation, but for our generation, that that which is still similar and same today, we know that we're to be aware of. I pray that we would discern the signs of the times and be on your side every time. Help us, convict us, lead us, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about Ignite Global Ministries, please go to our website, igniteglobalministries.org. While there, check out our Immersion Discipleship School and the books Pastor Ben has written.